On September 11th, 2001, our world changed in more ways than you even recognize. Because when the World Trade Center buildings were destroyed, when the Pentagon was attacked and another plane plummeted into the field in Pennsylvania, a movement erupted and a wave of anti-religious sentiment grew. That movement is often called new atheism. Authors like neuroscientist Sam Harris and biologist Richard Dawkins wrote scathing attacks, not just against radical Islam, but against all religion. You see, they became convinced that religion was the evil in our world. And these guys became like atheistic rock stars. They appeared on late night TV shows. They did lectures on college campuses around the country. They became YouTube sensations. Their debates with religious leaders uh, were watched over and over and they sold millions and millions of books. And while there has not been a huge surge in atheism in our country, a, a significant percentage of people have disengaged from religion. They have uh, disconnected with the religion of their uh, past, their heritage. In fact, so many people have disconnected from the religion or faith that they grew up with that there's actually a name for this group. They're called the nuns. Now, not nuns, N-U-N-S, like Mother Teresa. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And that's because whenever they fill out or surveys, when it comes to religion, they always check the box, not affiliated. The nuns make up 23% of the United States. So think about that. That's almost one out of every four. And the nuns comprise 35% of millennials. That is more than one out of every three. Now the nuns would say, hey, <laughs> we're not hostile toward religion. We're just not into it. We're done with the church and the God we were taught as kids. It's not really that we find atheism all that attractive. It's just that we find the religion we grew up with that unattractive. Now, some may have become nuns because they grew up with hyper-controlling Christian parents who tried to force their kids into good behavior. Some may have become nuns because they experienced serious pain in life, and they couldn't reconcile a good God with the bad stuff that they experienced. Some may have become nuns because they went off to college and they had many aspects of their faith and their religion questioned like a six-day creation or a 6,000-year-old earth. And when, when they saw the science, their faith was shaken. They got to a point where their faith in the Bible was shaken and so their faith in Christianity was shaken and so they became nuns. Have those same issues shaken your faith? or the faith of someone you love. Well, the author of one of my favorite books became a nun. His name is Dr. Henry Schaefer. He grew up in a nominally Episcopalian family, grew up in the church, who taught him though that the Bible was largely mythological. He said his experience in church as a child and a youth pretty much inoculated him against Christianity. By the time he went off to study at MIT in Boston, Schaefer was firmly grounded in his atheism. 
During his four years of study toward his degree in chemical physics, he said that he held tightly to his belief that Christianity was not intellectually sound. And yet, all through his studies, he kept coming across scientists renowned in their fields, and yet who were believers in Jesus Christ. Well, Schaefer eventually received his PhD from, in uh, chemical physics from Stanford and became a professor of chemistry at UCAL Berkeley. He went on to become renowned in his field. He was nominated five times for the Nobel Prize in chemistry, but he remained a nun. Now, at this point, some of you might be expecting me as a pastor to confront the nuns or to write angry blog posts about them. But that's not going to happen. We exist as a church to be the kind of place where nuns can come and ask their hardest questions. And so maybe you're a nun. I want you to know you're welcome here. This is a safe place to ask your hardest questions. And in my opinion, if Christianity is not compelling, then that's the church's bad. That's not the bad of the nuns. Now, I've been honest with you guys, those of you who've been around for a few years, I've been honest with you about my own spiritual journey. I grew up in the church, but I came to a place where I questioned the intellectual foundation of our faith. And I refused to settle for simplistic answers like, well, the Bible says it, and that settles it. Or, you just gotta have faith. That's crap, man. If Christianity cannot stand up to reasonable intellectual challenges, then it's a pretty weak religion in my opinion, and it shouldn't surprise us when nuns walk away from it. So, in this series, Who Needs God? I want to try to give the nuns, and and I hope there's some here, I want to try to give you some reasons to believe. And for those who do believe, I want to give you confidence that your faith is reasonable in a culture where nuns are having increasing influence. So today, I want to start with the very foundation of the Christian faith. Now, some of you may think that the foundation of our faith is the Bible, but it is not. And so if you left the church because of some challenges you have with certain parts of the Bible, especially maybe in the Old Testament, then you may have left Christianity unnecessarily. And here's what I mean by that. (laughs) If the Old Testament of the Bible suggests that the earth is 6,000 years old, but observable science says that it's 4.55 billion years old and that our universe is 14.5 billion years old, you might walk away from your faith because you might think, well, if the Bible's not right about that, then how do I know it's right about anything? If you left Christianity because of some discrepancies you have with the Old Testament of the Bible, I believe you may have left unnecessarily. The Christian faith does not exist because of the Bible. I'm going to say that again because I think you're shocked to hear it. The Christian faith does not exist because of the Bible. The Christian faith does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. And so if you lost your birth certificate, you wouldn't cease to exist. It just documented your birth, right? Your birth certificate 
documents something that happened. So for the sake of the argument, I'm going to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament of the Bible documents something that happened. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. In fact, it's the other way around. The reason we have a Bible like we have now is because of Christianity. Now, to explain what I mean by all of this, it's going to require a little bit of a history lesson. So I need you to put on your thinking brain, you know? And I want you to follow with me, and, and there's no way, better way to do a history lesson than with a little timeline. So, are you ready? I said, are you ready? All right, here we go. Scholars estimate that Jesus was born in 2 or 3 BC. And so that puts Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection at 30 AD. And a few weeks later, <coughs> the church movement was launched. The Christian religion began when hundreds and hundreds of people in Jerusalem gave this message. We saw Jesus crucified. We saw his body put into a tomb, but when we looked into the tomb, it was empty, and then we saw him alive. He is alive. He is alive, and I saw him. And literally thousands of people believed their testimony about Jesus' resurrection. They got baptized, and the church movement was launched in 30 A.D., Okay, so we got that date. Now, the next important date in this, uh, to the Christian faith is 70 AD. Let me explain why. Because in 66 AD, a period of time historians call the Jewish wars occurred in that region in the Roman Empire. For four years, the Roman leader Vespasian went from village to village throughout Galilee and Judea, which is modern day Israel, enslaving and killing rebellious Jews. He eventually herded all of them, all of the troublemakers into Jerusalem, and then he went off and became the next Roman emperor. So his son, on August the 6th of 70 AD, uh, his name is Titus, led Roman troops to destroy Jerusalem. His army surrounded the walls, tore them down, tore down the temple, crucified thousands, shipped hundreds of thousands of Jewish people off into the slave markets. It became the most sorrowful and chaotic season in Jewish history. And from that point forward, Israel ceased to exist as a nation for almost 1,900 years. Now, the reason this is such a really big deal <coughs> is because none of the New Testament writers who were all Jewish except for one guy, and that guy, they all lived in that area. And yet none of them mention these wars nor the destruction of Jerusalem. The only logical and reasonable reason they would not have referenced it is because those wars had not occurred yet. And this becomes important to my argument. This observation is important because once the church was launched in 30 AD, Jesus' followers began to write down what he taught and what he did. And that's where we get the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then later, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which records the early history of the church. Then the great church leader, Paul, began to write letters to various churches and church leaders from 49 to 67 AD, so all of that before 70 then he was executed for his faith in 67. And those original manuscripts were gathered and copied and eventually became the New Testament of our Bible. 
And this fact is so crucial because that means all of those documents were written and they were passed around when eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles and resurrection were still alive. And this fact became the compelling message of the Christian faith. Notice how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12, his disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though a few have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother. Then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul speaking, as to one abnormally born. And this is what Paul said. The resurrection is of the utmost importance of the Christian religion, not the Bible. And this right here, the resurrection of Jesus, this this is where we make our stand. And Paul and those first believers made their stand when people people could have easily found eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection to verify it. Our faith ultimately does not rest on the Old Testament of the Bible alone. The church and the Christian religion rests on the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And so if you're one of the nuns, I want to say something to you. If you left Christianity because of some problems you have with certain parts of the Old Testament, even if I might not agree with you about it, all right? That's, that's okay. But I'm concerned that if you left the Christian religion because of your views of the Old Testament, you may have left unnecessarily. I'm okay if you disagree with me about the Old Testament. I'm concerned that you may have left the faith because of it. So let's get back to our timeline. Okay, so the four books that told Jesus' life and story and his teaching, along with most of the rest of the New Testament, were written sometime between 30 and 70 AD. And this fact is so important because it means these documents were all written and circulated when eyewitnesses were still alive. Okay, now, another key to grasping the reasonability of the Christian faith is the type of literature in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament pin, pin themselves down to a specific historical dates and are written in what is called a historical style, not in the style of allegory or mythology. We have lots and lots of examples of both kinds of ancient literature in the first, second, and third centuries, and the New Testament books are all written in historical style, not mythological style. Now, why do I say that? Let me me give you just one example that shows the style of books and writings the New Testament are. So a medical doctor named Luke became a believer and he wrote a story of Jesus' life. In Luke chapter three, he pins down his story to a historical context. And I quote, this is Luke chapter three, verses one and two. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, how many of you checked out when I was reading that, right? 
Okay, because I bet normally when you come to that portion of scripture, you just start going, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 right? You're moving on to the good stuff. But I want you to grasp why verses like these are so significant to the reasonability of the Christian faith. When Luke recorded these very specific times and, and people, it was a historian's way of saying, fact check me. I dare you. I'm writing history, and this very specific time is when it happened. The New Testament does not read like mythology. It reads like history. I mean, Luke didn't write in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago, you know? And this fact became a compelling reason why a brilliant person like C.S. Lewis, an Oxford professor and author, left atheism for Christianity because he was an expert in ancient mythology and he recognized that the New Testament was not mythology, it was written as history. Now, okay, with this in mind, now let's go back to our timeline. So these New Testament documents were written when eyewitnesses could have rebutted the claims of those documents. And they were hand copied hundreds of times and distributed from Jerusalem to Rome to Alexandria to Constantinople, uh, Constantinople, all over the Mediterranean rim. And during this whole season in history, the New Testament documents were copied and copied and copied and copied and distributed all over the Roman world. And this is a big deal. There was nothing else like it in human history. The copying of all of these documents. And I mean, okay, so like today, if, if you got some good news and you want to share it with someone, what do you do? You click it and you hit, you hit share, right? That's all we got to do. But back in their day, if you got good news and you wanted to share it, you would take days and weeks and sometimes even months because you would have to hand copy every word on dry animal skin with quill and some kind of writing, uh, a liquid. Now, I will admit to you that when you have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of different people hand copying documents, you do end up with discrepancies and variations, and I acknowledge that. But, but, and this is crucial, all of the variations, they're included in your English Bible. That's because there's no secrets. There's nothing to hide, and none of the variations make any theological difference. I mean, it's not like one, one verse says that Jesus was crucified and another one said that he fell off his ladder when he was in his carpentry shop. The men and women who hand recorded these documents, they did so not because they thought what they were writing was inspired, even though we might believe that. That's not why they were writing it. They wrote down and they copied and copied and passed these on because they believed it was true. Okay, now back to our timeline. Last, last date, I promise, last date. The next significant event <coughs> occurred in 312 AD when Roman Emperor Constantine won the Battle of Milan Bridge, which secured the Roman Empire had, be, had begun to disintegrate. And so at that battle, he reunited the Roman Empire. And so uh, th this becomes significant. Let me explain why. So in between the time of Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire despite facing persecution from both Jewish leaders and Roman leaders. Then when the Jewish leaders were all kicked out of the, the Roman Empire, for the next 230 years, Christianity gained extraordinary and unexplainable influence in the Roman Empire despite the fact that they were persecuted almost constantly for centuries. 
And yet, by 312 AD, Christianity had so infiltrated the Roman Empire that Constantine turned to Christianity in an attempt to unite his empire. So here's my point. Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible as we know it even existed. You see, the Bible as we have it and know it did not come into existence until 350 AD. There was no Old Testament and New Testament put together, primarily because it was just too expensive. So Christianity spread through the testimony and eyewitnesses and then those New Testament you know, uh, books that were hand copied and passed around all over the Roman Empire. It spread before the Bible as we know it even existed. So for the first 300 years of the Christian existence, the debate was not about a book. It was about an event. The resurrection of Jesus. Did he rise from the dead or not. And Matthew said he did. And Mark said he did. And Luke said he did. And John said he did. And his own half-brother, who didn't even believe in him at first, said he did. There is no other explanation for the success of the early church except that these eyewitnesses all believed Jesus rose from the dead. And they were willing to hold on to their faith despite the fact that many of them were put to death for their faith. So here's my main point. The Christian religion did not disrupt the Roman Empire and spread throughout the known world because of a true Bible, because it didn't exist during that time. Christianity disrupted the Roman Empire and spread throughout the known world because of a resurrected Savior. The pre-Bible version of Christianity was defensible, it was endurable, it was fearless, it was compassionate, that's why people were attracted to it, and above all, it was compelling. And because of that fact, you can be sure of this. Jesus loves you. This I know because a despised tax collector named Matthew tells me so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because a medical doctor named Luke tells me so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because a Pharisee who hated and killed Christians but ultimately believed and became a martyr named Paul tells me so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because an unbelieving, skeptical half-brother of Jesus who became a believer in Jesus named James tells me so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because a resurrected Savior tells me so. The reason to believe that Jesus loves me and loves you is not just because the Bible tells me so, because I do still believe that. It's because the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection tell me so, and that is compelling. Now, earlier I introduced to you uh, one of the nuns, Dr. Henry Schaefer. And this is funny, though he did not believe in Jesus, didn't believe in the Bible, thought Christianity was silly, he still went to Episcopalian churches wherever he was because he thought at least it might help him be a good person. I love it. So one Easter Sunday, the priest began his sermon with this startling statement. He said, this whole business of Christianity is a sham if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Well, after the service, Dr. Shaver caught his priest and, and sort of began to ask him questions. And the priest asked him, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And Shaver said, absolutely not. And so the priest challenged him 
to actually investigate the historical evidence, even outside of the Bible, for the resurrection of Jesus. And so for the next three years, Schaefer poured over books and mounds and mounds of books and writings on the subject, and he became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. But he said, it might be nice if I could report that I became a Christian once I believed Jesus rose from the dead. But that's not what happened. <laughs> though he didn't believe immediately, though, when he became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, he began to study the rest of the New Testament. And he poured over its pages, and when he unpacked the teachings of Jesus and the eyewitnesses to his life and miracles and teachings, Schaefer found himself drawn to the one who could give him eternal life and entrance into heaven, proven by his resurrection. And now I quote Dr. Schaefer. He wrote, I realized that I could know that I am going to heaven, but not because of any adequacy on my own. For those who want to enter heaven on their own merits, the standard is perfection. And I knew that my life did not even measure up to my own standards, not to mention the standards of a holy God. But Jesus did live that perfect life. And he died on the cross for all who put their trust in him. Jesus took the punishment for my sins, which are many. By trusting exclusively in Christ, I will be able to stand in the presence of the God of the universe. There was no one there to lead me in a prayer. But on that day, a Berkeley professor of chemistry realized that he had become a Christian. And I knew my life would never be the same. Folks, Christianity is reasonable. It is intelligent. It is compelling. And if you don't believe... First of all, I want you to know you're welcome here. This is a safe place. It took Dr. Schaefer three years. You take as long as you want. And I want you to know you ask whatever hard question you want to ask. And we'll do our best to try to, to help you get the answers you need. But this is a safe place for you. You're welcome here. But I do urge you to look at the evidence. And consider the evidence for the resurrection of the man. I proudly call the Son of God and my Savior. And I hope you'll believe in him too. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, uh, I do pray in your name and I'm grateful that you, when you were here on the earth, you created environments where people who had hard questions felt okay in your presence to ask them. And so, Lord, I, first of all, I lift up our church and my prayer is that people feel that way about our church, that they can come here wherever they are, whatever they think, whatever they believe and don't believe. And my prayer, Lord, is that if they will really pursue truth, my hope is that they would experience faith in you. And until they, they do, Lord, I, I'll say that we will do our best to love them and answer as many of their questions as we can and to pray for them. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done and you've entrusted this whole movement that you began to us. And we just wanna say we'll do the best we can, Lord, to represent you on the earth until you return again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.